with issue for all women. Hello there and welcome to one of this week's Sunday Chops. Please, if you haven't already, check out the other one after this. And what is this? Well, it's me, Mickey, having a chat with playwright and lawyer Rachel Mariner about everything from feeling sorry for Harvey Weinstein to Mary Beard. From the blind date from hell to the Kardashians, from sacrificial old goats to the orange goon in the White House. Pretty much all of which plays a part in Rachel's latest play, Recovering Misogynist, which you can, and indeed should, digitally stream from the Cambridge Junction's website. Visit www.junction.co.uk forward slash recovering dash misogynist, where it's available to stream until August the 26th. I might sound a little bit excited, and that is because I can hear the distant rumbling of thunder, and it feels like payday. I am joined on the phone by playwright Rachel Mariner, whose new production, Recovering Misogynist, is currently on, virtually, at the Cambridge Junction, which means you can stream the play until August the 26th from the theatre's website. Rachel, hello. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. First things first, Kamala Harris has just been announced as Joe Biden's running mate. I'm not even American, and I couldn't be more delighted about her, less about him. But as an American, how are you feeling about this and about November in general? I feel great about Kamala Harris being chosen. I mean, I think she's great. And I think that she has some definite crossover appeal to people who might be having voted for Trump or a little disenchanted because she does have like, she's a prosecutor, right? She's got like law and order chops. How I'm feeling about November is I'm still full of trepidation Mm -hmm. about election fraud and the kind of stuff that Trump will do. And actually, like November, I have a certain amount of dread, but maybe even more for January. Yeah. I mean, he's played this like a reality show. And what would be get higher ratings than refusing to leave the White House? That is so true. I think that's a worrying thing. I I don't want to piss on anyone's parade about excitement over the Democratic ticket, but it just feels pointless when he's already setting it up that if the Democrats do win, he's going to contest it. All of that is already being very cleverly set up and put into process. But, you know, there are checks and balances built into the process. And I know that there are people in high levels of the military and the executive branch who are like, well, what do we do if he does this? That are thinking very clearly about it. And I do think that in the end, the correct process well, I hope that in the end, the correct process prevails. If not, then, you know, democracy's just over, right? Like, he gets what he wants. He gets like a Kim Jong-il sort of dictatorship. Wow. Wow. We were just chatting before I pressed record about the impending apocalypse and how it feels it might be happening <laughs> with the heat wave and Brexit and refugees and Trump and Corona. <laughs> I know. It is very biblical, right? Like we have a literal golden calf that people worship because it represents money. Or maybe there's going to be like a new Moses to come down with some new Ten Commandments. What would you like to see on some new Ten Commandments? Corporations are not people. Money is not speech. Inequality of wealth is an ethical dilemma. You know, those would be like my first three. And I think like a lot of rules kind of flow from those three principles yeah. about money and politics, about, you know, sort of the power of corporations and, you know, social media. Facebook is legally a person, right, because it's a corporation, but it's a person with so much more power than any other person. And we sort of are at its mercy instead of the reverse. 
Rachel, enough of this pessimism. Tell us about <laughs> tell us about feeling sorry for Harvey Weinstein. Right. So that was a weird weird couple days back in 2017, where I mean, you said if you try to be honest with yourself about your emotions and not sort of impose any orthodoxy, there I was realizing that that was prevailing emotion that I had. And then I sort of asked myself, why is that? And I wrote this blog post called Harvey Weinstein. And even the, the fact that the title is a man's name is in itself a demonstration of being a recovering misogynist, right? And I just wrote <laughs> through the history of me and sort of what was my normal. Because I was thinking these women were complaining about what was just reality, what was just inescapable part of proximity to power. And realizing that, no, it's not inescapable. And in fact, how is this empathy toward the powerful was sort of invaded my own emotional response to things and my own life choices, my perception of other women, my perception of myself and my abilities. So the piece, it's kind of good for a small screen, right, for streaming, because it's a very kind of internal, it's looking inside and asking the audience to do the same. Yeah, it's very talking heads. Yeah, although the images are, are, my producer, Sarah Reed, was like, well, I don't really want to see a talking head. And so we've got these great images from Cambridge videographers, Two Flicks, and the cinematographers of Fourth Culture. And it's sort of the images of Cambridge in lockdown, images of me, of the river. They kind of look like the patriarchy is crumbling, right? Like, they're good. They're good things to look at. Don't tease us, Rachel. <laughs> I think your emotional reaction to Harvey Weinstein is probably more common than a lot of women would like to admit, because we have been socialised so hard and for so long to focus on male gain and male pain when that gain is taken away from them, that that initial mm. knee jerk, oh, poor them, it does have this visceral sort of tug when it first happens, right? Yeah, it is a visceral tug. And I don't... What this play doesn't do is then go 360 degrees, or I guess maybe 180 degrees from that visceral tug and say like, oh no, they could never be redeemed. They could never be forgiven. We must completely cancel them. I'm really creeped out by the orthodoxy in popular culture in the moment of just canceling Mm. people out. I mean, people like Cosby and Weinstein committed crimes and deserve their jail sentence, you know. The connection that I think is so interesting with that empathy, if you think about Easter and every year, if you grew up in a like Christian tradition, you like felt so bad for Jesus having to die on the cross, you know, <laughs> like you really sad Jesus Friday. Yeah, you, you really did. And it was sort of that was the direction that your empathy went. You were just like the sinner who caused the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and, and that was the sort of that was the prototype or the framework of my sort of emotional landscape when this stuff hit. So it's just this show is trying to kind of unpack that. I think Weinstein's really interesting as well, because it's like he's become some sacrificial old goat. Okay, women, you got him. Now we're just going to leave a groper in the White House. And yeah, Brett Kavanaugh can be a Supreme Justice. Like they thought we'd be sated for a bit. And we're not. Right. Like, he was the sacrificial lamb. And in some ways, right, like, he had done a lot for women. Like, a lot of people didn't want him to be taken down because he'd financed the Frida Kahlo movie. And, you know, he'd done a lot of beautiful work and given a lot of women a chance to work in Hollywood that they wouldn't have otherwise had that chance. So... 
To quote Harvey Weinstein, I don't think anybody appreciates just how much I've done for women. Right. I mean, that's true. But can I tell you that um, when I lived in Washington, I went, I got set up on a blind date with Brett Kavanaugh. <gasps> no way. <laughs> yes, it's really true. And it it is amazing to me how, you know, corporate America is is more frightened of litigation than the people in the government, which is why you have, you know, Trump and Kavanaugh and you don't have Weinstein. In the end, these are economic decisions about risk and power. And the right really thinks of power as something that is only ever taken. And they also, it, it, I mean, it's sort of invisible. It doesn't really matter. The the stories of, you know, I hate to use the word victims, but the stories of people who were sexually assaulted, you know, who um, can demonstrate the sort of misogyny in the air around these guys. They're just sort of don't really matter that much. I mean, it's still normal in Washington, I guess, is what I'm stumbling around to say. That's so interesting as a phrase that a certain type of people view in power as something that can only ever be taken. I think you have properly nailed that because, yeah, the thought of sharing it is their nightmares, right? Right. Yeah. So when you when you met Brett Kavanaugh, did you think, I think this man would make a really good Supreme Justice? <laughs> no, I was disappointed because he was working for Ken Starr at the time. And I was working for Bill Clinton in the lawsuit, Jones v. Clinton. And he was working for Ken Starr on his, you know, the Starr report for the Senate. And so it was like Romeo and Juliet. So I was really hoping that we would be attracted and have this kind of incredible, but I wasn't really attracted to him. And while I kind of respected the fact that he volunteered, like he was like the girls basketball coach for a local school. And I kind of respected that. I was really, no, I wasn't really attracted to him. Oh, there you go. Your only disappointment <laughs> sprung from your only hate. I don't know. I can't quite make Shakespeare work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't make Shakespeare work. But now I look back at that and it sort of, it shows how normal it all was, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. May I ask you, obviously you don't have to answer, but how did you feel when Christine Blasey Ford was in the limelight? Oh man, I just loved her so much. Oh, she and was I'm amazing. so proud of her. You just knew that everything that she was saying was true and she knew she was going to get hurt for this and mm. she did it anyway. And I was like, I was so happy that she was saying these things. And I was so, you know, of course, the Senate, it you know, power's only ever taken. They weren't going to lose their opportunity to get somebody on the Supreme Court, you know. And it's not like, I'm not one of those, we hate the Tories, I hate all Republicans. I mean, I was against Neil Gorsuch, who was the Supreme Court Justice before, who was confirmed before Kavanaugh in a long trial in Paducah, Kentucky in the year 2000. And you know what? Like, He's a decent person. He's a decent lawyer. And I have friends who are Republican. God help me. I don't really think I have too many friends who are Trump supporters anymore, but I have family who are Trump supporters. Yeah. And I don't think that everybody is bad. But I do think that when someone like Christine Blasey Ford can get up and talk, and it's like this small cathartic moment of redemption for, for women, but it doesn't get anywhere then you realize, like, the system is deeply flawed. The system itself is deeply misogynistic, that, you know, no justice came from that. Exactly that, exactly that. But her willingness to put herself through that, and it shouldn't be the case, but seeing a woman do that means that other women feel like, well, maybe I can do that too. 
Yeah, and you know what else they think? They think, oh, you shouldn't have been at that party. You shouldn't have been drinking so much. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think women are perpetually harder on other women than they are on men because it goes back to this empathy point. So this brings us very neatly back to recovering misogynist because a lot of the stuff that you're dealing with that in there is to do with hashtag me too. And Tarana Burke started hashtag me too as a way of creating empowerment through the empathy that we've just been talking about. Are you still hopeful that empathy can lead to empowerment? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to see it because I think it could lead to votes. you know, And I think it can lead to your voice being heard. Uh, and I'd like to still think that, like, I'd like to still think that, you know, we could pull this plane out of the nosedive, that it is, I mean, everyone is home, I mean, all the women I know are home feeling pretty disempowered. Yeah. But if we go back to that point that power is only ever taken, you know, it's there for us. And maybe the first step is to perceive ourselves as able to take it. Mary Beard's book, Women in Power, was really influential in recovering misogynists. And I have this sort of extended section, kind of magical realist section with her. And she saw it. She's going to give me a little blurb for the post-show Q&A. She's watched it. so she, It didn't offend her. when she. But <laughs> I'm sure it didn't. <laughs> her book, Women in Power, basically is like power is defined by the absence of women in you. But it's just there for the taking if we perceive ourselves as as worthy and able. Recovering misogynist also takes in Bluebeard, as you've mentioned, Mary Beard, evangelical Christians, lawyers, Cambridge mums. How does that all fit together? Well, how it fits together is I take maybe the least flattering stories of these moments of my life (laughs) and look at them like evidence, you know, in Washington, I was a trial lawyer. Here, I'm a corporate lawyer, and I write plays. But until 2002, I was a trial lawyer, and I'm sort of I like this idea of sifting the evidence and what can I, what does that evidence demonstrate, um, and really not flinching from, you know, the negative conclusions that you can draw from the evidence of my life about my own misogyny. But I think that to some degree, what I'm doing as a piece of art is what you know, everybody, it's the examined life. It's like Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. So, you know, live the examined life. And I I think most people sort of try it some way. Do you agree to kind of examine their lives? Oh, definitely. Kind of figure themselves out. And I think recovering racist is sort of the natural companion piece because that is certainly an element of my existence. And that's something that a lot of white people are doing and thinking about now is, you know, unconscious bias is, huge and we only ever glimpse at it you know in the corner out of the corner of our eyes and these sort of sidelines and sort of flashes of recognition and anecdotes and i hope that the audience sitting through it will sort of see things out of the corner of their eyes about their lives and you know that this piece helps them in that process i think the language that you've used in the title is fascinating as well so obviously it's the language that's used around alcoholism I wonder, do you think you are ever recovered or are you always in recovery? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I I do think you're always in recovery, mm. right? Yeah. And I do think that 
it helps to sort of keep it at the forefront of your mind, you know. My son is 16, and when the pandemic hit, I really went on Twitter to campaign for, like, let's not do these GCSEs, right? Let's take their predicted grades, yeah. and let's, let's make these kids suffer a little less and have a little less stress, all right? And it was fascinating because, you know, my son's a white male, and so, of course, his predicted grades were going to be fine. But the response I had on Twitter was, you know, women who had daughters, people who were minorities were like, my, I got predicted a C and I got an A and now I'm a professor at Durham. You know, like you constantly are learning the limits of your own understanding and mm -hmm. that's got to be good. You're like pushing back the boundaries of your ignorance. So yeah, ongoing process. Yeah. And it has to be, we're all ongoing projects, right? So it's not like we can be, ta-da, finished, solved everything. We're sorted now. <laughs> it's true. I'd like to talk a little bit about theatre because it is an, and I'm going to use the euphemistic word here, interesting time for theatre and the arts right now. It, it feels pretty dire and absolutely is for a lot of people who are losing or have lost jobs. Mm -hmm. But, and I'm going to try and do a little bit of Pollyanna here, which isn't usually my guys, but here we go. But I think from these dire times, you do get artistic creativity almost like people popping up and thinking of new ideas of how to get their work out there so with the digital streaming of recovering misogynist is this is this how you envisage the play in the first place two responses to that first on the idea of good art being created in lockdown like yeah by people who have like their resources privilege and infrastructure mm -hmm. you know like there's a lot of people you know, if you don't have full-time childcare providers now, oh, gotcha. you know, like yeah. their kids are at home and they can't really do anything. It's like the proverbial Virginia Woolf room of your own, which is, you know, is actually part of a larger quote about resources. And so I think it's sort of devastating when I think the trauma of lockdown is, is a little bit devastating to the creative process. And two, I think like the logistics of having time, space and money are, you know, really eroded in a way that's completely gendered. Could not agree more. The fallout for women is just horrific. It really is, and it kind of lays bare the inequality that we sort of pretended didn't really exist, you know? Mm -hmm. So that sucks. Uh, <laughs> I originally envisioned this piece being performed by this actress named Jenny Shepherd-Stevens, who lives in L.A., but... I had another autobiographical play on in Chicago a few years ago, and she played the kind of me character. And I really wanted the words of the piece to be in the mouth of an empowered actor, you know, on a stage. So you have that intimacy and communion of like physically coming together. And I was developing it in connection with Cambridge Junction and Park Theatre in London. And then when that didn't work, uh, but I sort of set it aside and we were going to try to delay it. And I did a reading, like a Zoom call reading of the script uh, to Troop, which is the artist collective at Cambridge Junction. You know, there's just like eight people or whatever. They really liked the experience of just hearing the playwright's voice. And since it's autobiographical, that kind of adds a layer that may not be theatrical, but it is a layer, right? I guess maybe drama, not theater. Um, mm -hmm. 
So we talked about doing it as an audio play, and then our, my producer, Sarah Reeves, was like, would be great if there were images. So we hired this videographer, and we had our first sort of production meeting, and the videographers were like, well, what's your vision for the images? And we were like, I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of visions for a stage play, but not anything for a sort of digital play. Yeah. So we hired a cinematographer to kind of come up with some of the visions that were related to and reflected the work, but weren't a literal marriage. And that's how we got this. I think a lot of people might be surprised that someone who was a trial lawyer and is now a corporate lawyer is also a playwright. But I guess narrative is the thing that links those two seemingly disparate occupations. Yeah, it was 2000 when that trial against Neil Gorsuch ended and then I had another trial and I was just really tired and I wondered why I was working my ass off to be a trial lawyer. If you do a statistical analysis of the lyrics in Madonna songs, the three words that occur are baby love time. And someone told me that like right around 2000 and I realized like <laughs> those are the three things that I don't have, you know, and that I want. There was a theater down the street from where I lived and it was having a 10 minute play competition. So I wrote a play called baby love time about someone who just stopped going to work because, and at that point I had just stopped going to work. So it was again, super autobiographical <laughs> and, you know, a little frighteningly on the nose. Um, and what was great about it, what made me stick with it was just sitting in the audience, watching the actors perform and hearing not the applause at the end, but the little sounds of empathy that an audience makes, like the way they shift in their seat or kind of nod their head or exhale a little bit. It was like, all right, I'm expressing this deep, my sort of deepest feelings about being a human and other people are connecting to it. And it was so gratifying. It was like better than a jury verdict. So then I was hooked. <laughs> I guess that's going to be something you're probably going to miss with this being digital but you've also managed to get in there an aspect of the audience being a jury. It'll be interesting if there's any feedback. Yeah, you do, you're sort of deprived of that, of this sort of physical presence. You know, there's a, there's a post-show discussion about feminism and lockdown that's going to happen and uh, the audience can be able to feed questions and, you know, happy to be in touch i'm on social media be interested in people's reactions where can people find you on social media just on my name rachel mariner on twitter i'm on facebook as well i don't really use instagram which makes me feel like deficient and social media savvy but there you go if it makes you feel any better and this is certainly something i cling on to nearly everyone we speak to goes i don't really know how to do instagram so no one knows how to do instagram <laughs> unless you're a kardashian so or go. you're under 18, exactly. right? And thankfully, <laughs> I am neither of those things. <laughs> Kardashians are amazing. Do you think they're amazing? What I think is amazing is the power they have yeah. over... I was reading this article about how you know standard American pronunciation has shifted because of the Kardashians. Wow, that is insane you know, power. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's empowerment through empathy, like there you look at that that's what you got so yeah it, the american standard pronunciation used to be sort of located somewhere in ohio you know like the native speaker that would be you know because you have different accents in different regions but the kind of standardized american pronunciation is shifting toward california because 
the Kardashians are providing like a uniform force in lip gloss, eyebrows, and pronunciation. That is so, nuts. There you go. That is nuts. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for chatting to me. Where can people find out more about Recovering Misogynist and get it onto whatever they stream onto, please? So the Junction website is junction.co.uk. That's Cambridge Junction, and that's where you can buy a ticket, and they'll send you a password, and you can watch it on Vimeo. Um, you can find out more about this piece and the original blog post that kicked this whole thing off on my website, which is rachelmariner.com. And thanks for the opportunity to let people know. I really appreciate it. Standard Issue for All Women.